Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Welcome everyone to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We've got a couple of interesting guests today, but before we get to those, we will be chatting with Lou Wise, my co-host, who's in New Jersey, who's under uh, a nice heat wave today as we are in Atlanta. Lou, how you doing? Hot as hell. First week <laughs> that we actually have summer temperatures, 93 degrees, and the air conditioning in our high-rise office building went kaput. So you're lucky to have me on the air and not having me leave and going home to the pool. <laughs> that's that's nice. it. Everything's just everything is just hunky dory. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so what, what's happening in the world of the last week's show, next week's show, and news? Well, last last week we had uh, Tim Fiore, who is the new committee chair for uh, Report on Business. Uh, he just replaced uh, Brad Holcomb, who retired, and uh, he's taken his place and has quite a bio history of, of himself, which you can go to uh, ism.ws, uh, which is the easier URL to use, and uh, you can find his information there. Um, it was, uh, had a good report. Uh, we also had uh, Tony Nieves, who is the committee chair for the non-manufacturing, which kind of borderlines the manufacturing report, but they call it non anyway. Uh, according to uh, Tim, the, the number that came out last week was 54.9, which is right right on the sweet spot. And the uh, non-manufacturing number is on the other end of the sweet, sweet spot at 56.9. So the numbers, even though one, uh, the 54.9 went down by 0.1, over a month ago, it's okay. You don't want to get everything too overly heated and then have uh, banks raising interest and all the rest of that stuff. So good numbers, good report. Uh, I strongly suggest for you who follow that report, which I've been following for over 40 years and found that uh, my business, uh, All Metals and Forge Group, has pretty much run consistent with the ISM reports over four decades. Um, they came out last week with the, um, the jobs report, the May job report, which came out at uh, 138,000 in May. Uh, they were a bit disappointed in that, but uh, frankly, uh, there are less people and more people working and uh, uh, manufacturing, however, did lose a thousand jobs. So I'm not quite sure how those numbers all work out. Uh, durable goods jobs uh, also dropped by 3,000 last month. But uh, all in all, uh, the uh, unemployment number uh, is at 4.3, which is the lowest unemployment in 17 years. Uh, and that's uh, quite incredible. So uh, that's a little good and a little bad, but overall everything is looking pretty pretty well. Um, our next week's show is our global show featuring Chris Keel from Armada Corporate Intelligence uh, discussing the credit manager's uh, report. 
and Chung Wang reporting from China on what's going on in our uh, Chinese uh, part of the world. Roy Flo from uh, the UK and France is going to be reporting on the UK and the EU. And Chad Moutre from uh, the National Association of Manufacturers. And Norbert Orff from Strategis, the PMI report. So we got a lot of numbers next week. Um, and uh, I think that uh, things are looking pretty good all around. Uh, everybody seems to be picking up. Um, matter of fact, uh, next, uh, actually this week, uh, as one of our uh, news items, our uh, friend and colleague Jay Timmons, who's uh, president and CEO of NAM, is going to Congress to urge them to support uh, President Trump's call for $1 trillion investment in infrastructure. And uh, he's also going to be outlining many of the high-priority proposals in the NAM Building to Win Policy Agenda. So we tip our hat to Jay, and he always does a good job on the Hill. So we like what he's doing. Now, one of the interesting things on our next uh, news item uh, in view of infrastructure becoming the uh, hot uh, issue is that uh, John Deere Company is uh, you know, betting big bucks on the fact that uh, the infrastructure and the building and improving roads and highways and bridges, that they went ahead and they spent $5.2 billion to buy a German company called Wirtgen Group. Uh, they're a construction company. Uh, Deere paid uh, cash for the company. That's how much they believe in it. Uh, this also makes uh, Deere an international company, uh, and it really gives them a big foothold in construction here in the uh, U.S. Um, so going with more of uh, manufacturing uh, ideology regarding technology and uh, digital um, uh, digital uh, involvement within their company, uh, MPI uh, came out with their 2017 Internet of Things study last week. Uh, the results are quite astonishing, and I strongly suggest that you go and uh, Google it. Uh, it's called MPI 2017 Internet of Things Study. And in that report, uh, they kind of presented the fact that uh, even though bringing in high technology and uh, uh, into the manufacturing plant may be expensive, but it may be expensive not enough not to bring that kind of technology to the manufacturing plant. Um, out of the uh, 100 top manufacturing companies in the United States, 72% uh, reported higher productivity just in one year. 69% uh, of the manufacturers increased their profitability within the last two years. And half of the plant production equipment processes are currently managed via IoT, with 88% expecting to increase their application over the next two years. So it looks as though... Um, Cyber technology is here to stay. It doesn't seem as though that it's going to go away anytime soon. So for all you buggy whip manufacturers, you better get on the stick, fellas. 
is here to stay. Tim? Yeah, indeed it is here to stay, Lou. We've been talking about all of the developments in technology over the last couple of years, and it's only accelerating. As a matter of fact, General Motors said they expect to see as much technological innovation in their production in the next five years as they've seen over the last 50 years. So that's the wow. pace of technology right now. Well, let me really go incredible. one step further. Let me go one step further. Uh, Boeing came out with uh, a news item that uh, they have now developed the K-46 uh, gas tanker uh, where they will be able to uh, uh, refuel jets, not only uh, U.S. Air Force uh, jets, but also commercial jets, midair in the dark. And uh, there's 146 tankers that the Air Force just gave a contract for. So aerospace is going to be a wild and woolly place. And uh, hats off to Boeing. They're doing a good job of uh, adapting new technology to sell to uh, not only government, but also to private enterprise, meaning the airlines. Uh, maybe they'll find a, a better way to drag patients drag, uh, not patients, but drag passengers off the plane without making them patients. <laughs> I couldn't help <laughs> well, that one. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. The airlines of recent seem to want to put the hospital in hospitality. So <laughs> I'm not sure where that's going to end up for them. But they're, they get in the news a lot. I, I guess any news is good news as long as you're in the news. Yeah, but uh, it probably cost them about $3 million in uh, uh, payments to the one Asian gentleman who was dragged off the plane. But uh, some good luck comes to people who are hit with bad luck. Can be, can be. So what are we are looking today? about? Uh, those who are you, of you are looking at Air Freight, uh, we have airfreight.bid on our show today, and we also have CDI Capital Management. I, I really encourage you to stay tuned for both of these segments, um, particularly CDI Capital Management, which does some very interesting work in rural, low-income communities. So let's get to our guests. We are here with Max Christensen, who is the Digital Sales and Marketing Everything, director or manager or coordinator for a company called airfreight.bid. Very interesting operation. We want to have Max kind of educate our audience on what airfreight.bid does and how it can help your company. Max, welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Tim and Lou, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, we're glad to have you here, and I'd like you to share with us just kind of the from 30,000 feet, since we're talking about air freight. Give our listeners what a 30,000-foot view is of airfreight.bid, if you would, please. Sure. So www.airfreight.bid is uh, essentially an autonomous air freight uh, management platform and marketplace. Uh, the platform is designed to shippers, uh, air freight shippers, and air freight service providers, carriers, air freight forwarders uh, together in one platform. Um, 
it's essentially subscriber driven and carrier supported. Uh, it, it is a it's it's a unique story. Um, the parent company of Airfreight.bid is an organization by the name of Total Logistics Incorporated. Total Logistics, uh, better known to uh, anyone out there in the freight world uh, or logistics world as a 3PL or third-party logistics provider, essentially a logistics consulting firm. Over the years, that business model changed exponentially and it, it was uh, years back, it was more of a, uh, they were more of negotiating companies for freight services for any anybody looking to ship goods from point A to point B. That business has changed in that, much like many other businesses today, and it's the further need for automation and technology is driving a lot of changes within many uh, companies across the globe, um, essentially to streamline and maximize efficiencies and eliminate costs. Um, Airfreight.fit was conceptualized by one of their clients, uh, which is one of the largest importers in North America. Um, they came to Total Logistics. They, they were uh, a good standing client with the company. They came to Total Logistics and they said, we need some kind of a platform or some type of tool to help us manage our air freight procurement process of our goods. Um, Total Logistics and their IT development team took this challenge. They conceptualized the, the product. They took their processes and kind of reverse engineered them. And the result was a similar platform to airfreight.bid. So airfreight.bid, as we know today, is somewhat of a changed public version of that proprietary version we had developed for that uh, organization. Um, so it's been proven, uh, the concept's been proven by this company for over three and a half years. Um, it's reduced costs in the millions of dollars for uh, this client. And it's uh, really provided, uh, the intent was to provide um, somewhat of a frictional, frictionless uh, experience uh, utilizing air freight and add transparency to it and oversight at a better level than what previously uh, had been known. So is air freight – I'm sorry, Lou, did you have a question there? No, go ahead, Jim. Is air freight typically a uh, challenging process to, uh, to use to move goods from point A to point B? Uh, again, uh, depends on the speed in which um, X corporation or X company or X organization needs to move those goods. Um, as we all know, and I, my background previous to uh, the past few years was uh, turning to the food industry and CPG retail within consumable products, specifically um, fresh and frozen seafood from both domestic points all over the world. Um, so it depends on how fast to market you want to, you want or need to get your goods. Every every industry is different. Uh, my previous experience was heavily weighted on uh, over the road or LTL transportation or sea freight containers for imports. Um, and in the event of either fresh product versus frozen or product shortages or out of stock, would be when. That, that business that I was previously in would utilize air freight. Uh, for other industries that, let's say, are shipping fresh goods from uh, Mexico into the United States or elsewhere, produce, uh, seafood, things of that nature, they would require a one- to two-day transit time. Um, goods such as electronics and another vertical or pharmaceuticals uh, may also require a shorter transit time because of the way their market goes uh, how they sell product. Um, electronics companies would typically need to get goods to market within a number of days because uh, 
it's, it can be commodity driven and pricing can affect uh, the value of their goods and the sale saleability of their goods once they get into the state. When when you're dealing with a, a client, a new client, and uh, let's say it's a, a mid mid size manufacturer of uh, widgets, okay, and uh, is it like dealing with any other air freight forwarder where you know you, you call up, you get a price, uh, or are there instances where uh, you can work with a client on some kind of a contractual basis so that uh, he's always shipping widgets. He's shipping nuts and bolts all over the country. Um, do you have contractual arrangements where they can uh, conserve on costs by having a contract rather than a one-of? We do. We, uh, from a simplistic standpoint, we offer uh, three different versions of air freight out bid from a subscription basis. So they can, so a subscriber can start with a free version. Uh, they can use a pro version, uh, or they can opt to go with an enterprise version. If they require a, a pretty robust uh, uh, repetition of, of goods mm -hmm. coming in, they would more likely go with an enterprise version. Um, and then within that enterprise version, they would be able to. Uh, negotiate their freight rates within that enterprise version a little bit more, more, more detail versus just blocking them. Now, are they are they negotiating with uh, airfreight.bid or are they negotiating with the carrier that's on your platform? We provide, through the platform, we have the ability to provide uh, instant rates depending on the weight of service and service level and transit time. Right. Uh, if instant rates are not populated or if the subscriber is not happy with the response to the instant rates that are already in the system, they can then choose to send an additional uh, rate request out, which would then bring those quotes back through the platform to the shipper slash subscriber and allow them to choose the rate and transit time that best fits their needs. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Max, uh, let's talk about supply chain for a moment. Uh, you know, supply chain used to be a, a back office operation. Now it's a C-suite position. Um, over the last 10 years, because you've been now involved in both sides of it as the recipient of goods coming in from overseas and also as now as the uh, mechanism to move goods from point A to point B, how has supply chain changed over the last 10 years in terms of efficiency and technology? I realize it's a really broad question, but give us a couple of high points. Uh, you know, essentially, you know, I'll, I'll give you some perfect uh, related examples to my experience thus far with Air Freight Dotted and in comparison to my previous experience in the industry uh, dealing with imports and transporting goods from point A to point B. In today's uh, economy, in today's world, any organization that is in business and is uh, reliant on the sale of goods uh, does not have the option anymore to let the logistics side be a back office afterthought, so to speak, as it was, as we all know it was 10 years ago. Um, today, uh, the further need for uh, automation and transparency um, efficiencies maximized within supply chain and logistics, it's not an option anymore. It's a requirement if you want to be in business in two years. Um, and I'll cite an example. We, we just got done exhibiting at the uh, North, North American Seafood Expo in Boston, uh, previously known as the Boston Seafood Show. And uh, one of the leads that we walked away with from that show was a significant uh, uh, fresh uh, seafood uh, further processor, importer, exporter, 
and they essentially came to came to stop by the booth. Asked, you know, we provided a quick demo of the platform, and the response from the CFO of this organization, they're a hundred million dollar plus uh, organization in run rate and revenue, basically said, you know, we had 20 air ship, 20 air freight shipments in two days. But those 20 air freight shipments in two days resulted in no less than 87 emails being returned to our logistics manager. Um, you know, we, she, she, this logistics manager that he cited, she has, she's by herself and she has backup on a part-time basis for one or two people. She has her exact words where she cannot, she's excellent at her job. We've had her on board for a long time. No one is humanly possible of running through all these rates and selecting the best rate possible. Can you help us? We did a quick demo for them on loaded data we had in the platform, and we determined that we could reduce their time spent doing the same operation, same procedure that they had, that they had explained to us, and narrow that field down to approximately five to seven, maybe eight emails, um, reducing their time exponentially. It, it's, it, it doesn't become a matter of cost per shipment as much as it becomes ease of use, a frictionless experience for the shipper, and adding that transparency and that level of further automation to the whole process. How do you know uh, you reduced your uh, flow of uh, emails from 87 to 7? Uh, how, how does she know, the, the, the client, that she's getting the best possible price? I mean, you have 87 emails. You can't possibly go through them all. Uh, they're in the database. They fit the parameters for a search. Um, but again, you have seven. How do you know that you're getting the best deal? You have all of this information now. Utilizing AirFreight.bid for your air freight procurement process, you have all this information now rolled up into one dashboard. So you don't have to hunt around in your inbox for the 87 emails. You log into your platform, you enter your, you sign into your account, you look at your dashboard, and you have all of your rate requests right in front of you uh, listed by price, by carrier and transit time. You can now compare and contrast all the benefits of the different rate, rate responses. Um, further uh, rolling out sometime uh, mid-May, we will have the, an analytics piece that will plug into the, that will be part of the platform for the subscriber, and it will allow in greater detail for that subscriber to analyze the freight spend or air freight spend. And uh, candidly, it's, it's a complete game changer as far as time spent, cost, and uh, everything related to the process. When you are, uh, as a client user, um, putting in a job uh, to get a freight rate, uh, I presume that you have to put in, obviously, weights. You have to put in sizes, you know, cubic feet and all of that information in order to uh, be able to generate a price quotation. You do, and this platform allows you to put in uh, your dimensions of the mm -hmm. shipment, and it'll ca calculate uh, all your dimensional sizes and weights for you, and uh, you can uh, earmark it as whether it's, uh, choose it, whether the cargo is going to be per container, per box, per bag, et cetera. Okay. Um, we will further add, uh, within the platform, uh, rolling out in a couple weeks, we'll have, uh, there'll be a further option for the subscriber to choose the cargo type that they're going to consign, because that greatly de that depends on which carriers we can sh uh, send sure. the freight quotes to. Not every carrier is going to handle uh, compressed gas, for example. Not mm -hmm. every carrier is going to handle perishable. Right. So we'll have a uh, further level of detail rolling out in about a week or two that will streamline those rate requests going specifically to just those carriers that handle those lands and those cargo types. Like in the 
trucking industry, we get the lowest classification because we're handling steel. It's very dense as opposed to an airplane load of feathers, which is what you're talking about. Right. Okay. Max, I'm curious about uh, data. That's kind of the talk of the town when it comes to supply chain these days. More visibility of the data and what's happening to your goods as they move from point to point. And one of the things that's kind of evolving out of that is something called blockchain. Has blockchain entered the world of total logistics or air freight dot bid yet? Um, as far as did you re did you repeat that? Uh, blockchain. I'm not you know familiar right now. Okay. Yeah. Well, block blockchain is kind of the newest data time code stamping of goods as they move from each handler. Everyone who touches it has their own code that they put on it. So they can date and time stamp the movement of goods, but predominantly for squeezing out uh, not inefficiencies, but counterfeits in the system. So I'm just curious whether or not blockchain had entered into uh, air freight .bid yet because it gives the shipper all kinds of data from, you know, if they're importing something from the heart of Africa and it's going through Europe and eventually coming to the United States, they know everyone who touched it, and the purpose of blockchain is to keep the wrong people from touching it. Um, anything, now, one of the things we talk about is, you know, the effectiveness of air freight as a transportation mode. You know, I know people look at air freight and go, ooh, ooh expensive, but is it really? Uh, I mean, in all honesty, uh, the, getting back to the question of blockchain, uh, the Subscriber, the shipper used utilizing airfreight.bid has the ability to incorporate, and there's several devices, there's several systems in the marketplace that are available now with reference to what you're calling blockchain. Uh, there's several monitoring devices that, uh, time, you know, the old school method back, back in my uh, seafood days were, were the simple time temperature recorders. Um, today they're so advanced. Uh, referencing back to your question of blockchain, that the advancement within some of these technologies is that you can have an independent apparatus that rides uh, a device that rides on your cargo that will record uh, difference in temperatures, difference uh, in climates, uh, times that it's spent uh, on the ground, in the air, et cetera. And uh, there's uh, interfaces that the shipper can actually watch their products move from point A to point B through, through their entirety in real time. Um, so that kind of answers your question on blockchain. If the shipper opted to add that element of technology into their shipment, um, they'd be more than welcome to work that out with the carrier. Um, it will potentially be a further uh, uh, revision of air freight updated down the road, but uh, for right now we haven't had a need or calling for it. Most of the shippers that want or require that technology have already figured that aspect out. Uh, and if they have it as a result of damage, et cetera, they'll, you know, they'll surely do that. That's more of a driver for uh, a lot of the shippers specific to their cargo type and dependent on their carriers as well. So how about the cost of air freight? Um, as I said, everybody kind of uh, is concerned because it seems expensive, but is it really? It sounds like air freight .bid gives me an opportunity to manage my, my air freight cost. Well, I mean, when you say expensive, uh, it, it, again, it goes back to the cargo type you're moving and the time in which you need to move it uh, and how right. it affects your business. Um, you know, if you're if you're moving 
uh, lobster meat from point A to point B, and you know that you know, the market's going to crash within three days, and you own a product at $25 a pound, and the market's at 30 but you know in four weeks the market's going to be 12 um, does the air freight really come into play? And the same goes back to electronics or any other uh, cargo of that type, of that nature. If you can't, you know, basically on the import side, your point-to-point transit time on sea, sea freight or sea containers is an average of six to ten weeks point-to-point. Um, can you afford to have that time lapse within your supply chain? Many people can uh, if you're shipping widgets and you know it can backfill your supply chain with three months of inventory and you don't have tremendous spikes in uh, demand or uh, order fulfillment, then by all means, use use the longer transit time. But if you honestly absolutely have to get your goods to market, Airframe is the best solution for right now. And with the advances in technology, such as Airfreight.bit, uh, in the next five to ten years, I can see the cost of air freight being reduced dramatically versus what it is today and even what it was 10 years ago. Just as a a, uh, side note, um, the technology in air freight today, are are they going to be coming up with uh, new types of aircraft and with different speeds that can handle uh, shipments quicker than what they are now? There, you know, it's a good question, Lou, and they're, they're already coming out with uh, a lot of our social media spin that's going out there to create, to create and generate awareness about air freight and about the technologies. There's, you know, we're all familiar with autonomous trucks mm-hmm. uh, hauling goods from across different points of the country. Um, there's a lot of testing going on with uh, drone technology within mm-hmm. aircraft, specifically right. uh, freighter aircraft. You know, if that if we see that technology develop at half the rate that the autonomous truck technology mm-hmm. has developed, I mean, autonomous truck technology has been around for a while, but it really began hit the media wire about two and a half, three years ago, mm-hmm. and really gained a lot of press uh, notoriety. Now, uh, with air freight technology and drone technology and some of these other autonomous ideas for transporting goods. Um, you know, we can probably honestly say we can see an autonomous drone air freighter flying across the friendly sky sometime possibly in the next three to five years. Is that right? And wow. that's which I'm sure will greatly reduce the sure. cost. Sure. Yeah. Just uh, curious on that note. Thank you. Tim? Well, Max, we certainly appreciate you being with us here on Manufacturing Talk Radio. It's fascinating what's happening in logistics and Airfreight.biz sounds like it's doing some fascinating things to help uh, the client base save some money and move things more effectively and have greater visibility on their shipments. So we appreciate you joining us. No, I appreciate the uh, time. If if possible, I'd like to just go through a few of the fine points of Airfreight.biz quickly. Uh, Again, just to reemphasize and reiterate, it's an autonomous air freight management platform marketplace. Uh, it's subscriber-driven and carrier uh, partner-supported. Um, it's a proven management, uh, air freight management tool. Uh, as stated earlier, it's been tested by one of the largest importers in North America successfully for over three and a half years with a cost reduction of millions of, millions of dollars. Um, for our carrier partners, uh, we are an extension of their sales and marketing efforts. Um, it greatly reduces friction of the shipper and streamlining the cumbersome process. Uh, it's an air freight management tool that saves time and resources for all parties involved and adds further transparency and automation to the process of air freight. Um, 
<coughs> coming out, uh, releasing on Monday, we will be doing a promotion for airfreight.bid. Um, we have three levels of service, free, pro, and enterprise. Um, we will be doing a promotion, uh, a free 30-day trial for the pro version of airfreight.bid with its full functionality. Um, we'll be sending that out and generating it via social media and some direct emails. Um, we encourage uh, any organization utilizing air freight as a mode to ship that's from point A to point B to definitely take advantage of the free 30-day trial. Uh, it's a very robust system, a lot of features and benefits for the uh, user. Um, it's uh, on an autonomous platform. It's very simple to use. As stated earlier, it rolls up all of your air freight uh, uh, air freight um, transactions into one easy to use platform. Um, we will be rolling that out. It'll be a 30 day trial. Uh, you can easily log in for a free account and up upgrade to Pro, provide your credit card information. There will be no charge to your credit card, and you can test drive the uh, platform for free for 30 days. And it is airfreight.bid. It is airfreight.bid, www.airfreight.bid. Okay. So everyone knows where and how to reach out to you. We've been speaking with Matt Christensen, who is uh, with AirFreight.bid, handling digital sales and marketing. And we will be right back uh, after this brief break. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. Elevate your career and stay ahead of the curve with EISM. Brought to you by the Institute for Supply Management. EISM is the first on-the-go lifestyle-compatible learning initiative in the industry. It features hyper-short 15-minute modules and guided learning courses that can be completed in as few as three weeks, just right for you or your team. It's the world's largest one-stop online learning shop for supply management. Register today at ismelearning.org. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment, components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials? 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason ThomasNet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to ThomasNet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're speaking with Charlie Spies, spelled like spies, but it's Spies, who is the CEO of CEI Capital Management. I am particularly excited to have uh, Charlie on the show with Lou and I. 
uh, he works in an area in rural and low-income communities across America. So I want to jump right into the interview with Charlie. Charlie, welcome to the show. Great. Uh, thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Well, I wonder if you would explain to our listeners a little bit about CEI and how, and then we'll start to get in, you know, how, how the funds flow and what new market tax credits are and all the kind of exciting things you do. But uh, give us the elevator sure. pitch on CEI. Sure. Um, okay, so what I'm the CEO of CEI Capital Management, which is a subsidiary of Coastal Enterprises, and the uh, initials there are CEI. And CEI was founded in 1978. It's a mission-driven investor. It's been around since then working on how to use transactions to create opportunities, uh, especially in low-income uh, communities. And um, we look at three things whenever we do a project. We look at the quality of the jobs. We look at whether there's uh, uh, environmental sustainability and then also shared prosperity for that community. And today in, in many manufacturers, you can find all three of those things. So we've been involved in this for quite a while. Um, now what I do is, is run a for-profit subsidiary of this CEI that's called uh, CI Capital Management. And we focus on the New Markets Tax Credit Program to deliver that same kind of mission-driven investments uh, throughout the country. So we work from, at this point, from Maine to Hawaii using the New Markets Tax Credit Program to try and provide opportunities for job creation uh, and shared prosperity in low-income communities, mostly in rural parts of the, the country. Gee, is this something, uh, Charlie, that uh, maybe the United States government should be aware of? Maybe they could uh, help in this? Well, it's, they are very aware of it. It's a federal program. The New Markets Tax Credit is a federal program. Uh, it was first formed in 2000, uh, uh, signed into law uh, under the Clinton administration, and then supported by uh, all the administrations that followed. It's not considered uh, to be on one side of the aisle or the other, if you will. And uh, it's, it, there's been about 5,000 of these deals done across the country, and um, it's been um, – uh, considered to be quite successful in pushing capital into areas that otherwise were typically not being invested in and very often by investors who hadn't put capital into those types of areas. So um, the, the program itself has been around, as I said, since 2000. The first projects were done in, in late 2003. We did ours in early 2004, and we've done 91 of those since then and uh, continue to, to work on trying to get the program made permanent. Um, it gets approved by Congress uh, pretty much on an annual basis, but the best scenario would be to have this thing out there permanently so we can continue to use this tool. So how, how does this work in terms of, let's say, one of our uh, listeners who's a sure. manufa manufacturing company and yeah. they want to be able to take advantage of the program that you described? What do they have to do? Well, I, I'll give you the nuts and bolts. Um, certainly happy to do that, and you can get very complex, um, go very deep on new markets tax credits uh, if you choose to. Um, but let me give you a few examples of some of the companies that we've worked with in manufacturing, just to give a sense of of how we've been able to use it to help them. Um, one one example is is right here in Maine, where we're based. As I said, we work across the country, but we're based out of Portland, uh, Maine area. And we up in, in this part of the woods, uh, literally, um, the paper industry is very important. And um, it's, it's had some real challenges in the last decade. And we've had six paper mills close over the last eight years in Maine. But St. Croix Tissue up in uh, Baileyville, Maine, which is in the 
uh, northeast uh, quadrant of Maine. Uh, we helped them in install two new tissue machines. They were producing pulp, and uh, which is the basis for paper. And then by putting in the tissue machines, they added a, um, a tremendous amount of value on the end of their production line, if you will. And uh, this is a mill that had been operating for, for a century. So there are four generations of, of uh, folks that have been working there. The town was built up around it. And this vertical integration into tissue really helped them expand uh, their markets and add value to what they were producing before. So that helped them you know, protect jobs that they were already there, about 350 jobs. And then they created another 80 jobs with this, this new technology. Um, we've, we've also used it down in Georgia for uh, peanut processing, um, believe it or not. And it's uh, the largest shelling plant in Georgia right now. Uh, was helped fund, we helped fund with new markets tax credits, and that helped growers, over 200 diff different growers, have a, a consistent buying uh, source that would buy under contract over multiple years, which they didn't have before, and then add value so that in the end of the day, they're getting more value for their peanuts than they would have otherwise. And there's other examples that I'm happy to go into where we've done yeah, addressing I'd like, I'd like to hear another Sorry. I'd like to hear another one. Uh, do, you have, sure. do you have one you know, heavy manufacturing? Yes. Machinery um, builder? Well, we have one um, uh, out in, in, uh, in Minnesota um, that is uh, producing glass. Uh, it's called uh, Viracon. They're an architectural glass manufacturer. And um, they found that over time, the size of glass has increased uh, in, in architectural design, um, you know, the panes of glass have gotten bigger. And right. in order to compete in a, in a world market, they needed to really upgrade their machinery and equipment. And so we were able to help them do that. And that added 80 jobs on their campus and also allowed them to um, uh, avoid, you know, moving out of the country, frankly, to seek manufacturing that might have been uh, located in a different area. So this helped keep them more competitive in that way. So so from th there's three examples that you gave. Uh, mm -hmm. This is what I got, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, in all three ap uh, three applications, the manufacturer was able to expand their product line, and actually selling another product. Uh, additionally, and number two, uh, you wound up they wound up hiring uh, a lot of new employees, and saved jobs from going overseas. That's that's correct. Uh, yeah, they, they they all had elements of that. In some cases, they were able to add value, so they were more competitive in a commodity type uh, production area. Right. And in um, some cases, it would allow them to reduce their unit cost and produce the same good, but do it at a lower cost. So all of those things mm -hmm. add up, and they all have different dynamics, as you know, in the manufacturing world. Sure. And when you say heavy manufacturing, um, if you've ever seen a paper machine, it's it's like looking at a yeah, I, liner. It's, it's I, a big, I stand correct. <laughs> I stand correct. Yeah. yeah, that's great. So you do, this, you do this. You do this mainly in uh, lower income and uh, financially stressed areas of the country. Yeah, the the idea and legislative intent behind the New Markets Program was to drive capital into areas where that are economically distressed. And, and as you can imagine, during the recession, um, this this became even more important because at that time, uh, capital markets and banks were were not as active as they had been, and so this became a really important tool. So we look at and have to under the program 
demographic data for each area where we work. So if you're in a, a census tract that qualifies, which is has measures of low income or high poverty rates that meet the criteria, right. then that gets you started down the, the, the track towards being a qualified area for us to be able to drive that capital. And so the mm -hmm. idea is to push that capital into areas that, that need it the most. And uh, it's been very successful in that regard. Um, it's a very, yeah, it's a very, very competitive program. Um, we're part of maybe 300 or 400 different entities that have received authority under the U.S. Treasury to do this. But mm -hmm. when you go in for an application, uh, very often you're competing against um, hundreds of others, uh, including uh, large money center banks and then organizations like ours are competing for the what's available for allocation. And you have to be able to tell a good story about what you did. You know, did you sure. did you do what you said you were going to do? Did you invest in the types of companies you said you were going to invest in? Right. And uh, is it making a difference? And you have to be able to, to prove that with, with metrics as well. Well, being that you opened the door on this, uh, if a, a listener of ours would like to get an application, how would they go about doing it? Can they go to your website? Yes, talk I can. To any of your people? Do you want to give us your uh, website address? Sure, sure. It's at um, actually just you can go to www.cei.com, uh, and that'll or, or I'm sorry, um, www.ceicapitalmanagement.com. C E I C A P I T A L, and then mgmt.com. Or you can go okay, to the Coastal Enterprises uh, website, and either one will drive mm -hmm. you down to where we mm -hmm. are. Um, and then we're always always happy to talk to folks. Like I said, we have some constraints in that we tend to work more in rural areas. You know, I like to say we grew up in, in Maine working on forestry, fisheries, and agriculture, and it turns out that those are transferable skills that we can take to manufacturers, especially in, in many other rural parts of the country. But right. uh, if we can't if we can't help you, we can often point you in the right direction. Um, others that may use allocation in more uh, urban areas or have mm -hmm. certain types of areas that they work in. So we can be helpful there. The other thing Is I should point out, um, I'm sorry to interrupt, Lou, but uh, no, no problem. The, I just wanted to make sure that folks were aware, if they go to the CDFI Fund website, um, which is part of the Department of Treasury, if you go to, uh, uh, I, I guess, just Google um, CDFI fund, you'll get to their website, and then they're the ones that manage the program from the Department of Treasury's perspective, and they have a listing of all the entities like ours that have qualified for allocation, what's available, and that's a good way to go, too, because then you can zero in on your geographic area, look at who's working in your area, who's based in your right. area, and that, that can be helpful as well. Well, that's a helpful piece of information. Is this program good for profits and nonprofit corporations? Yes, uh, it can work for both. Um, examples are, you know, we, we think about as we work in a community, especially in rural areas, we, we often say they're, they're shallow economies. They're, they're very often built around a mill or an industry uh, right. that if that is having a problem, then everybody's got a problem because there aren't other options to go to, if you will, in terms of manufacturing mm -hmm. other businesses. So, um, that's an important part of it, but there's other elements in these communities that are important too, like um, hospitals or health centers, or sometimes it's uh, a, a performing arts center or something along those lines. So we've done health clinics in rural areas. We we have done uh, performing arts centers as as uh, 
areas try to diversify their economy and maybe attract ecotourism and things like that, we'll, we'll do an analysis and we'll think, well, is this an important component of that community? Most of what we've done has been in manufacturing, but we will consider other aspects of, of uh, what the community needs to kind of be, have a whole fabric of a community there, not just the manufacturer. Uh, Charlie, I have in my notes from a, a, a preview discussion that you and I had, and I don't know what the note means, but it's an important number. So I want you to explain what this number means, $50 billion available. Okay, sure. Um, roughly, the program has been authorized to to approve $50 billion of investments altogether in these low-income areas for qualified businesses. And when we say $50 billion, this is where we get a little bit into the nuts and bolts, uh, uh, Lou. Um, mm-hmm. if, if of a qualified investment, 39% of that can be uh, used as a tax credit by a tax credit investor. So say you're, you're doing a $10 million investment, which is, for us, we're working typically in $10 million to $20 million project size. Um, mm-hmm. If you do $10 million is authorized as an investment, then $3.9 million of that can be taken over the next seven years by the tax credit investor. And that's that's not the business. It's the investor in the into the business that can then take the tax credits and be yeah because they get those tax credits then their money goes in at a much lower cost and at much higher risk they're typically subordinate to any other lending and they don't even take a a, a ownership position in the company they're just looking to get those tax credits back so in the You're 50 right. billion that's that's the total number over the program's life right now i i think and i'm just using rough numbers here about 35 37 billion has been uh, allocated and awarded. Um, there's another three rounds that would put out roughly another 10 million. So let's just say that roughly 40 billion has been out, put out uh, through the program. And then through 2019, there's a couple more rounds that would go out at about three and a half billion dollars each. Mm-hmm. So there's still more to come. What we're hoping is that uh, Congress will ultimately make it permanent, as I said. And then in that case, you'd hope to see three to five to seven billion a year available. Uh, mm-hmm. For investing in these low-income communities, so that's where the 50 billion comes from. The total well, well we life. we we know how we know how good they are at uh, accomplishing programs and getting the votes out. So hopefully they'll uh, accommodate your needs. Um, I, w- one of my questions is in regards to uh, uh, the success stats on companies who have done, go- gone through this program and gotten an investment, and basically, how, have they succeeded overall? Have there oh, been that's... significant, uh, significant uh, improvement in their areas and their companies? You know, that's a, it's a great question, and it's, a, it's an important one, really, because we, we look at three things, as I uh, kind of indicated earlier. One, one of them has got to be, is it, does the deal make sense? Because if you're not if it doesn't make sense, you're not really helping anybody by lending them money or investing in them um, if, you, if you don't believe in the deal. Right. Uh, and so w- that's one of our screens, if you will, and then we're looking at the job quality and the sustainability and what kind of communities and how distressed they are. We've done 91 different projects, um, and we've really had a very extremely low failure rate. 
uh, in our projects. Um, I would say it's akin to what a commercial bank might see, so very low. Um, and the, the interesting thing about it is we're driving capital into what would be considered higher-risk areas and very often higher-risk companies. And the, the kind of thing, the cleanest example is we went through the recession. Uh, we were there before, during, and now after the recession from 2007 on, uh, working with companies that, frankly, were having a hard time getting capital from anybody, even though they might have been established and well-known, uh, the banks were having their own issues, and uh, this allowed people to eliminate just enough risk to allow people to go forward and get these things done. And, and mm -hmm. the failure rates in our portfolio have been extremely low. This this almost sounds a little bit like a government version of Shark Tank. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I wouldn't say that. I mean, we're not we're not a uh, voracious. We're not. Um, we, what we do is look at the the projects. We work with the management team that's at the company. We want to make sure that they can do what they say they're going to do. They've either done it historically, and that the story they're telling makes sense. Then we help. Uh, convene the investors and and also work with the lenders that are involved, and we're kind of in the middle of all of it, just organizing right. that. We're the ones that have the authority and help pull that together. And then we're in it for seven years. We're not just saying, "Oh, you're good or you're bad," and then we move away. Oh, really? We help we help get the transaction done, and then we're involved during that seven years while the tax credit investor is is able to take those tax credits over the next seven years, and we make right. sure that all the that everybody's doing what they need to do under the program compliance, that the financing is working out, and by that I mean the loans are being repaid and the cash is going where it's supposed to do, and we track all that. We also look at what promises were made about job creation or other things that we might build into the the project on the front end. Like it's not uncommon for us to, to help um, with scholarships at a local community college if a machinery and equipment manufacturer needs those kinds of skills to help sure. set up a program like that as part of the program. So so we're not, I wouldn't uh, equate, we're, we're not like a venture capital group or, or a shark tank per se. We're looking <laughs> for good projects in those areas, and we're, we're much kinder and gentler than, than that. <laughs> Anybody could be. Uh, the, uh, when the When a program is set up with a manufacturer and yourselves, is the investor at all involved in the uh, either meetings or operation of the manufacturing plant itself? Well, they're or not. Is it all, they're, or is it all through you? No. The, uh, well, there's a combination. Of, there's, they're certainly not involved in the operation or overall management of the organization. But we're all we always make a site visit um, and get to know the management and the site where the you know. Um, the project's going to be built or already built and added onto. We want to understand that, and and always the investors are involved in those aspects of it. The, the interesting thing about the structure of this program is it's a public-private partnership. Not all the money is coming from the market's tax credit investment. There's also private capital that doesn't have the tax credit that flows in that has to be part of it to make it all happen. And so there's skin in the game, if you will. I'm sure you've used that yeah. term on this show before. Sure. Uh, from all these parties, so they have to they have to understand what they're getting into. They have to know who their partners are going to be because everybody's tied up for the next seven years. They're all sure. part of the team, so they're not certainly telling anybody how to manage, but they're very interested on the outset who they're getting involved with, and they want it to go well during that seven-year period because they have a financial interest in doing that. 
For the uh, listeners who may have joined in late, could you kindly give us your uh, website address again? I want to make sure, sure that, that everyone hears it. Sure thing. Um, I'm with I'm Charlie Spees. I'm with CEI Capital Management. And you can either go to uh, Coastal Enterprises' website just by Googling it, or you can get to www.ceicapitalmgmt.com, and that will bring you to uh, specifically to our website, or you can drop down through the, the menu at the Coastal website. Oh, that's, uh, that's terrific. It sounds like a great program. Uh, it sounds like we've had a lot of success stories. We're, we're very proud of what we do, um, and as I said, I, I've been at it now for about a decade, and uh, uh, it's really nice to see people come out of a recession more competitive than they were before or to add a production mm-hmm. line that re- reduces their unit cost. And, you know, manufacturing these days is it's, it's about the, the machinery and equipment, but it's also about the skilled people that are around that machinery and equipment. It's about the opportunities it provides at all levels of education. So, um, we're quite quite proud to be part of that and part of the, the success story. In, in view of uh, other stories that uh, Tim and I have covered over the years, uh, today with uh, you know the skill gap issue, uh, the fact that uh, robotics has become such a strong industry, are many of your programs leaning? Are they are they involved as a as a, uh, an aspect because of skills gap, and are they getting into uh, robotics and uh, uh, iPad running machines and so on? I mean, are, are you are you at the upper scale, or are you or are they still pulling out of uh, the doldrums? Um, I, I think, as a general rule, it's I would say that most manufacturing that that. Uh, is going to remain competitive, especially if they're producing a commodity. And an example of that would be a sawmill that's making two by fours. Um, they've got to be a low cost, you know, low unit cost producer, and they've had to go to more mechanization. And and I think that's, as a general statement, something that you're seeing quite often. We, um, though, as I said earlier, here's a good example. Um, we worked with uh, Saint Croix Tissue, and they knew they needed to hire 80 new people when they put in these tissue machines. Now, uh, 20 years ago, they might have had to hire 150 people to work on those same machines. So there's definitely more automation there. But we right. we helped them with a workforce training program that allowed they part of the the project requirement was that 60% of the people that they hired came from that area and were in fact low income at hire. And so they knew they had to think about how they would recruit and train these people. And as part of the overall project, we worked with the local community college and the local university and some other partners to create a training program that allowed uh, individuals in that area to go in, um, get the basic training they needed to be able to work on these machines and, um, and get hired. And the hiring rate was around 50%. And the company thought that was very important to hire locally because they are in a, in a very rural area. And they found that if they try and bring in people from long distances away, Ultimately, very often those people will ultimately move away over time because of their family is not happy there or other dynamics. And so if they can bring in people locally and then train them to work on this new type of manufacturing environment, that's a plus-plus. So, yes, we do see that, and then we try and figure out, well, how can we mitigate for that? And then some of the companies that we've worked with, like uh, Premium Peanut uh, and and uh, 
Commonwealth Dairy, which produces yogurt. They are uh, happy to hire people with um, high school education uh, and also uh, in one case, Viracon um, will pay for their employees um, to uh, move on to an associate's degree because they know that that helps them over time. So I think it's coming from both directions there. It's, you see some mechanization, obviously, um, robotics and whatever else, but also these manufacturers are trying to figure out how can they help the people in their communities fit into these jobs. Uh, Tim, I've kind of dominated the uh, show today because I'm really excited about the things that uh, Charlie's been talking about. So, uh, you know, jump in any time. Charlie, Charlie, who is or who are the funders that fund these transactions? I'm assuming it's not a commercial bank. Uh, Yeah, very often it is a commercial bank. There there can be a combination of funders. There's usually a a, – excuse me a component of the transaction that is a straight loan, a commercial loan. And then there's the the piece where the tax credit, it's called tax credit equity, but it's that part that that is able to take advantage of the tax credits over seven years. And uh, you'll often see large commercial banks that are involved, and they'll do both uh, a loan and uh, purchase of the tax credits because they can use those then to offset uh, federal tax liability over the next seven years on their income statement. Sometimes uh, you'll just see the a commercial bank buying the tax credit side, and you might have a community bank that's doing the loan. Sometimes it's uh, maybe an owner, uh, a parent uh, in, in, a, in a multinational type of company or a large national company where the parent is making the loan off its uh, balance sheet, and then you might have a bank or someone else coming in and buying the tax credit. So there's a lot of different ways that it can be structured. But we often see, you know, I could name names, but I, I would let them do that for themselves. But if you think of any any national bank or or money center bank in in the country, the odds are they've been involved in the markets tax credit transactions. And we also find and if to, this becomes build, build on that, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. To build on that. Well, I was just going to say to to build on that, we we don't just find the money center banks. Uh, certainly in Maine, we've worked with community banks. And they're very interested in the local community and the, their manufacturers. And once they learn of the New Markets program, we've had several of them step up and say, okay, we're going to figure out how this works. We could also use the tax credits under certain circumstances, and we want to make a loan because if we can make that company stronger, there's other opportunities for us with lines of credits and things like that. So um, we've had several community banks that we've worked with, and and uh, they've they've gotten through the first uh, deal and then consistently come back and said we'd like to do another one. So so we see banking at different levels being involved in this program, and then other sources of capital too. Um, I guess the next question, and like, kind of like my last question on this one, is since the federal government is providing the, obviously the tax credits and they've put a fifty billion dollar cap on it. Uh, where do you see this going down the road if it becomes permanent? Is it still going to be a, a, a large viable program? Well, we would hope so. And, and the fifty billion, um, the actual tax credits are thirty nine percent of that, so you know roughly twenty billion. And I'm not saying that's a small number in my world. That's a very big number. But uh, uh, and and actually fifty billion in Washington D.C. is not a huge number. Um, so. It's not a, a like a, you know it, it sounds I know it sounds ironic to say that but it's it's true it's it's just not 
It's not a gigantic program in Washington, um, but it's one that when people learn about it, legislators see things happening in their communities that have been enhanced by the new markets tax credit. Generally, they are very positive about what's happened there. So what we would hope is that it um, it doesn't just kind of disappear, that it gets made permanent, and that it would continue on on an annual basis roughly in you know the 5 to $7 billion range, which wouldn't make it a gigantic program, but it is effective in, in uh, creating economic development in areas of economic distress, and we would love to see that continue. Well, that's a great uh, job, uh, job creator. We've, we've, with our own portfolio, I mentioned earlier that we've placed uh, $944 million in, in, in uh, allocation thus far. And uh, by you know, certified reports that have come back to us from the employers, that's generated about 4,700 uh, full-time jobs, another 3,300 construction jobs. So it's, it's really had an impact. And those kinds oh, of jobs okay. that are the, you know, the, the direct jobs that are created, as you well know, that – that ripples down through those economies, especially in rural areas where you know, mm-hmm. the industries are so critical. That's that's quite amazing. Forty seven hundred people working in Maine. That's a that's a an additional forty seven hundred. That's a lot right. of people. Well that would be that'd be not just in Maine because we do work nationally, but it's a good number I in see. any rural community. In any rural sure. community I think they'd Absolutely. be quite pleased with that. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, very good. Yeah. Uh, this is a great story, and uh, uh, we, uh, we're here to help you get that story out. If you'd like yeah, to, we appreciate uh, it. Sure, thank you. Uh, if there's anything that we could do for you in the futures uh, to help you get more of the story out, we'd be really pleased to do so. Tim? Well, that's great, and I very much appreciate the opportunity to talk to you gentlemen. I know you have deep experience in this area, and so it's it's always great to have a conversation with people that have been on kind of both sides of the aisle, if you will. <laughs> I, I'm actually from, I walk down the aisle. I don't sit on either <laughs> side. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because if you did, then you'd get hurt by your machinery and equipment. So you do, gotta, you do have to stay inside those yellow lines. That's right. That's exactly That's right. right. That's exactly yeah. right. Well, Charlie, thank you for being on Manufacturing Talk Radio with us. We appreciate all the information that you've shared with our listeners. Well, you're very welcome, and as I said, I appreciate the time you've given me today. No problem. We enjoyed it. And thank we you have, very much. We have been speaking with Charlie Spies, who is the CEO of CEI Capital Management. Again, his website is ceicapitalmgmt.com. We suggest you give them a look-see if you're in a rural area and you need to do something with your manufacturing operations, get a hold of Charlie Spies at CEO Capital Management. Okay, folks, I just want to remind you about our next week's show, our global show featuring Chris Keel from Armada Corp. Intelligence, discussing the CMI, the Credit Manager's Report, and Chong Wang reporting from China, uh, Roy Slow from the U.K. and E.U., Chad Moutre from the National Association of Manufacturers, and Norbert Orr from Strategis with his PMI report. Uh, we are, uh, the way things are going, we're expecting that uh, the numbers are going to be pretty good. And uh, it seems as though that uh, the numbers are picking up uh, to a great extent in Europe, and that naturally affects us, being that they are still our allies. Uh, but then again, that's next week, so who knows. Uh, Tim? 
<laughs> yeah, we'll see if they're still friendly to us uh, as uh, they move forward through Brexit and we move forward through Trump. It uh, should be very interesting. We encourage all of our listeners to uh, go to our library and check out any of our previous shows. Uh, they are all at mfgtalkradio.com, and we appreciate you listening today to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>